0: Welcome to Discipling Conversations, a special episode where we do a deeper dive on complex topics. What's up, everybody? This is the Disciple Makers podcast brought to you by discipleship.org, and I'm your host, Dave Stovall. I'm super excited about this episode today. This is a special episode where we get the privilege of interviewing our point leader, Bobby Harrington, on the topic of Israel. There's a lot of questions. A lot of people are asking things and thinking things. And so we wanted to take a break at the end of this season here and just talk to Bobby, who's basically an expert on these issues. So I'm excited. Bobby, welcome to the show. Would you say hello to everybody?
1: Yeah, I'm super happy to be with you, my friend Dave Stovall. I would not qualify myself as an expert. I'm a guy who's had a fascination uh, with Israel. Uh, I I think maybe a divine fascination. I've got, I was just thinking about it. So I was a student. I was 20 years old at the University of Calgary. And I can remember being in the library, being fascinated by what Israel was doing, even as I was just coming to faith in Jesus. So. Uh, I'm, I can claim fascination. How's that?
0: That sounds good. Well, to us, you know, just regular people that don't have that fascination, you come across <laughs> as the expert on these issues. So, okay. okay. Uh, sometimes I'll describe you as a a walking Google about things like this. If you want to know something, just go ask Bobby. So <laughs> I'm excited, um, and I, I mean, it feels weird to say that because I know that what's going on there is is tragic and terrible. But I'm just excited to sit down with you and process this together, because you know, I'm somebody I'm, I'm 40 years old, and a lot of people my age have a little bit of distrust towards news outlets. Right? We don't really know yeah. who's telling us from what agenda, and you know what's going on there. So a lot of times, uh, people my age and maybe younger, we just won't be in the know. We won't really know what's going on until we've sat down and talked with people. Um, that we trust and sort of process it. So, part of this episode today is going to be me just asking you questions and processing it with you. So the you the, the happy, point of this is happy that,
1: to do that and I just love you and uh, have hold you in very high regard.
0: Oh, I appreciate that, Bobby. And the, part of the point of this episode today is is discipling people with these tough questions, and so you'll be sort yeah. of uh, do giving an example of what that looks like with me today for our listeners. So I think that's pretty cool. So can we start with like just a quick catch up of what's happening like today right now in Israel? Cause we, we know what has happened, um, uh, with the terror attacks and we know, you know, what's happened in the last couple of weeks, but what's going on right now? What's the recent news?
1: Well, well, so, This recording is going out Monday, and this is just a couple of days before that, that you and I are recording it. Right now, um, Israel has bombarded uh, the Gaza Strip, especially the northern part of the Gaza Strip, for quite a while. They've got troops slowly, methodically moving in. The bigger thing, Dave, and this could blow up any day, is in the north, <clears throat> excuse me, in the north in Lebanon is a Iranian-backed group called Hezbollah. And Hezbollah is the sworn enemy of Israel. And a re- recording just came out uh, from Nasrallah, who's the leader of Hezbollah in Lebanon, uh, uh, basically saying that they're they're engaging Israel. Now, one of the things you get used to in the Middle East is people uh, – on the muslim side tend to bluff a lot and say things so we're not sure but if hezbollah enters the war full you know full on that's bad news that means this thing's going to get really bad
0: oh no that sounds ominous sounds scary
1: yeah i it is uh it's sad for me here's why um hamas would be like one twentieth of the strength of Hezbollah. Hezbollah has, they say, a hundred and thirty thousand missiles, and some of these are, are major missiles. And uh, one estimate I read said tens of thousands of Israelis would die.
0: Oh my gosh! Israel,
1: Israel has told Hezbollah, if you do that, we're gonna we're gonna obliterate Lebanon. That they're gonna the infrastructure. They they had a war. Uh, I believe it was two thousand and six. And it totally devastated the country of Lebanon. So if they do it again, it's, uh, Israel has told them that they're going to do great damage. And w- when they say that, they're not bluffing. The Israelis, one of the things that's true, the Israelis don't bluff. Um, there's reasons for that that we can get into, but they have told uh, the people of Lebanon, if Hezbollah does that, we're going to destroy your country's infrastructure.
0: My goodness. So what's the the size difference you're saying between Hezbollah and Israel, like their armies?
1: So uh, Hezbollah is Iranian-backed, and for about um, 16 years, they've been working to recover from the 2006 uh, war. And uh, their army is—nobody in the area has got an army as strong as Israel— but that doesn't mean they don't have an army that can do great damage. Hezbollah, like I said, they'd be one twentieth. Uh, maybe even more than uh twenty times. Uh Hamas is one twentieth. It may yeah. Hezbollah may be twenty more than twenty times. I mean, Hezbollah is it you know, is is like a, a country's army. Uh, Dolly. Um backed by Iran. Sophisticated weapons and drones that I mean, they're significant.
0: So, this seems to just keep happening with Israel, right? Like, yeah, I was reading like the, the the few blogs that you've just recently published on renew.org about this to get prepared for the interview, and it seems like that's the recurring theme is that just this keeps happening, no matter who it's coming from, it just happens over and over again. And it also seemed to me. That like those those blogs were really helpful by the way, Bobby. So thank you for writing those. It also yeah. seemed to me that Israel keeps trying to be reasonable with some things, like they're like, Hey, you know, this we'll give you this part of the land back, if you'll be peaceful with us, or even with their threats. Hey, if you come at us, we're going to destroy this, this we're going to destroy Lebanon. Like why why keep pursuing that if if they're if that's been their actions this whole time?
1: Yeah. So I think to really understand Israel, uh, we've got to go back uh, and understand the um, history of how the Jews have been treated since the um, since the temple was destroyed in seventy AD. Jesus predicted in thirty AD that the temple would be destroyed within that generation, which was forty years. And so, from sixty six to seventy AD, the Romans occupied Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. Uh, completing the destruction in seventy A.D. A lot of people um, look at the situation right now, and they just look at it through a contemporary lens. So let me describe how I think a lot of uh, university students um, and and passive lookers, onlookers who don't have the history, look at it. It looks like Israel is oppressing. Uh, the Palestinians. If 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 you just start today, and you look at it, uh, or if you live there, um, Dave, I, I've had uh, the great joy of going twelve times to Israel. Uh, I take people uh, to look at the archaeology and history, history and geography of the life of Jesus, and I love doing that. And then in the process, of course, you're in Israel. I've gotten to know the Israelis. Uh, but our tour guides have always been Palestinian Christians, hmm. and so uh, really feel fortunate to have that background. Now, if all you do is look at the present state, it looks like in Gaza that the Israelis are really oppressing the Palestinian people. Uh, somewhere around 2.2, 2.3 million people live in Gaza. It's extremely crowded, maybe the most crowded area on planet Earth, because it's like six miles wide, 25 miles long. They're all hemmed in by the sea on the west side. And of course, Israel has a fence around it. So if you just look at that, you're going to think, man, these poor Palestinian people. And then you couple that with the West Bank, where there's probably another 2.5, maybe 3 million people on the West Bank. <clears throat> and they don't have the rights of uh, the other people who live in Israel itself. For example, in Bethlehem right now, because they're the Israelis are afraid of the Arab population in Bethlehem, which is in the West Bank. It's not in the Gaza Strip. Uh, they've, they're they not supplying gas and things like that to the people who live there because they're afraid they're going to join the war against Israel, uh, mm. these Israelis. Uh, Uh, Muslim people in the West Bank. So if you just look at that, it looks like they're being mistreated. But you have to go back and you have to know the story, because it's kind of, uh, once you understand the story, you can say this is really unfortunate what's happening. But it makes sense why the Israelis are doing what they're doing. So let let me do something that I can't do fairly, but let me try to do it. And that's just do a flyby of the history.
0: Okay, go for it. Does
1: that sound good? Yeah. By the way, the current Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, his father was a famous historian. Uh, Todd, I believe it was New York University. Uh, Netanyahu speaks perfect English because he spent so much time in the U.S. Uh, uh, he got a master's at MIT in Boston, so, you know, sharp cookie. But his father was an expert in the Holocaust and uh lived to be a hundred years of age and so Netanyahu is very familiar with, with this in fact Netanyahu's brother was killed in a daring raid in uh I believe it was 1978 they rescued Israelis that had been uh on a plane hijacked and they went into Uganda and Tebi Uganda and uh they rescued them all but they lost one soldier and it was Netanyahu's brother. So you've got to just uh, understand the psyche of the Israelis. Now, let's go back in history. So what happened in 70 AD is the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. The Romans took Jewish people and made them slaves. A lot of folks don't know this, but the Jews built the Colosseum in Rome. It was Jewish slaves uh, who had lived in Jerusalem and they built the temple and all those things, they were the ones captured, taken the slaves and built the Colosseum in Rome. So starting then and accentuated with the Bar Kokba revolt of 132 AD, from that time until 1948, the Jews had no homeland and the Jews were regularly mistreated, persecuted, and often put to death. Uh, if you, uh, look at some of the history, you'll, you'll shake your head at how people, especially, this is key to understand the Jewish psyche, people who claim to be Christians throughout history have mistreated the Jews. I mean, they were, they were kicked out of Spain. Every Jewish person was kicked out of Spain. And then let's talk about the atrocity of all atrocities. Half of all Jewish people were killed in the Holocaust Mm -hmm. in World War II. Six million Jews. And as World War II started, it was probably um, just around 12 million Jews. It's hard to get exact numbers, but they've documented it very well uh, in the Holocaust. And uh, um, for example, Poland had a population of about 30 million when World War II started 10% of Poland were Jewish. By the end of World War II, three million had been killed. Uh, there was just several thousands of Polish Jews left. So in the aftermath of World War II, when all the Jews had been uh, destroyed, uh, Jews and the world, when the Holocaust became known, were very desirous of having their own homeland where they could protect themselves. And so in 1947, the United Nations agreed to partition the land. And on May 15th, 1948, with the backing of the United Nations, uh, David Ben-Gurion, then the prime minister of Israel, declared their independence and that they were a nation. Now, stay with me, Dave. I'm with you. So you're, you're, you're a Jewish person. For 2000 years, your people have been persecuted and mistreated. You just, uh, you survived the Holocaust. Half of your people were put to death in uh, Hitler's gas chambers. Um, You realize that nobody's gonna protect you. So you get your own land because the United Nations declares it. And you're willing to share that land with the Arabs. The plan, the United Nations plan was that it would be shared. You declare your independence and right away all the surrounding Arab nations attack you. They want to destroy you. They don't just want to attack you. You got to understand this. They want to annihilate the Jews. It's like the Holocaust all over again.
0: Mm.
1: The Arabs are trying to perpetrate another Holocaust. So Egypt, Lebanon. Syria, Jordan. I mean, you've got them coming from Iraq and Iran and Pakistan, all of these Muslims. And we need to get to the religious aspect of this. They want to destroy Israel. Well, some amazing things that happened behind the scenes that we can get into. But God prepared the people of Israel, I believe, and uh, they were able to prevail in the 1948 war. And they offered to give back land. Every time they offer to give back land and treat the Arabs right, if they will just make peace. But they won't. So in 1967, 19 years later, they're going to attack Israel again. Israel figures it out. The Egyptian troops have all been marshaled. Israel figures it out. And they fight them again in 1967. And again, it's the destruction of Israel that the Arabs are going for. And it's called the Six-Day War. Michael Oren wrote a book about it called The Six-Day War. And you just got to read that book. It'll blow your mind because the Israelis are just thinking they want to defend themselves. Uh, and But they know that they've got to be real shrewd and smart and go after it. Right. They devastate all these armies in six days. Finally, the U.S. says, stop, and the United Nations say, stop, and the Israelis stop, and they tell everybody, we'll give you back these lands if you'll just make peace. But again, the Muslim nations say, no peace, uh, no agreement, we're going to destroy you. Now, what happened then is there's another major war. Um, let me give you these last couple of wars. In 1973, it's called the Yom Kippur War. Uh, The Day of Atonement in Israel is a big uh, holiday, and uh, they attack Israel on Yom Kippur. And uh, the Israelis at first are losing, but finally they recover, and uh, they, they fight back, and the war ends as a stalemate. By the way, the movie Golda, about Golda Meir, the prime minister of Israel, just came out. The actress Helen Murren stars in it, and uh, it's an interesting movie to watch. In 1978, then, the Egyptians make peace. Uh, the Egyptians are given billions of dollars every year from the U.S. to make peace. Then in the 90s, we have the Oslo Accords with uh, Israel and Jordan and the Palestinians. Uh, Jordan makes peace with Israel, <clears throat> and they stop fighting Um The Oslo Accords give everybody hope, but uh, Bill Clinton, Yasser Arafat, and uh, 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 Ehud Barak, the Israeli, Israeli Prime Minister, they meet somewhere around 2000 to make peace. And the Arabs come so close, Dave, to making peace, but they won't because, in my opinion, the Muslims won't let them. And so all of the Uh, Arab people, again, are so frustrated, and they start taking these desperate measures. It's called the anti-Fatah, and uh, they literally will blow themselves up to kill a bunch of Israelis. It happens twice. The Israelis end up putting fences up to protect themselves from the Muslim people. That's why there's such a fence around Hamas in Gaza. The Israelis trying to make peace withdrew from Gaza in 2007. Uh, and basically what happens is uh, the people in Gaza vote in Hamas. Hamas is a religious organization committed to the destruction of Israel. It's in their charter documents. They're going to destroy Israel. So how do you make peace with an organization like that? And that gets us to kind of in a choppy way to where we are today.
0: Well, that that's thank you for sharing that. That's extremely helpful to have the backstory like that. My one question is, coming out of that, is war right? Like, it seems to me like Israel doesn't have any other choice if there are these uh, surrounding countries around them that have it, like you said, in their documents to destroy them, not to have peace. Like, what are they right. supposed to do?
1: That's see. That's the thing that I look at um, some of the protests and I listen to what they say, and I'm going like, like, what do you want Israel to do? Hamas just murdered 1,400 of their civilians. I mean, Dave, you got to remember, I'm this is a, a podcast for disciples. I believe that Satan and the demons have brought these persecutions to the Jews over the years. The Jews have not always been innocent, by the way. I don't want to act like what Israel has done every time is right, because it's not.
0: Right.
1: We can talk about God's sovereignty and all of that, but just fundamentally what they have done and what they propose to do, that whole expression uh, that they're saying right now, from the river to the sea, Palestine-free? That means they're going to eradicate uh, 7 million Jews?
0: Hmm.
1: Like, that's what they want to do. And uh, people don't realize that. Like, what are you going to do when somebody's doing that? Now, part of this is going to get to your Christian beliefs. I have very good friends who are pacifists. They don't believe in war. Um, I'm not a pacifist. I've, I've thought about it. I I think in my early days as a disciple, I leaned that way. Uh, my family on my father's side were pacifists, even though they didn't come from a Christian point of view. But uh, I uh, looked at the text about pacifism, and I, I don't think it's right. I think Romans 13 describes the role of government is to bear the sword. I do believe in what's called the just war theory. And uh, this was developed by Christians. I think it's uh, it. It says that there are cases where you go to war, and uh, you want to make sure it's just. So let me give you the four parts of just war theory, really, really quickly. Uh, it's a just cause with just authority, so government authority. It's last resort, and by just means. So. Let's let's use the filter of just war theory. First, I think it's a just cause. When they're I mean they, they're decapitating babies. Right. They're raping women and taking hostages and killing old people. I mean, they went into if you haven't seen it, you should uh, go just so you're for your education, just uh, go on Google and and search for what did Hamas do. I mean, terrible. Any government has a role and a responsibility to protect the citizens. Right. So, it's a just cause, what's the authority to do it? Well, it's a government. It's a government's job. I don't get to take up arms and uh, just do whatever I want. Just war theory says it has to be the government authority. Number three, last resort. And if you listen to Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, and if you watch him, in fact, uh, he is severely being criticized right now for not dealing more strongly with Hamas over the last 16 years, because he kept trying to work things out with Hamas. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he said, you know, after what they did, it's the worst single day since the Holocaust. Notice the language. Notice the Jewish psyche. It's the la- it's the worst uh single day of destruction for Jewish people since the Holocaust. And he said, We can't do we can't put up with this anymore. We're going to war. So it was a last resort. Now the question is, is it proportionate? Is it uh is it a just execution? That's what Are I was wondering. Are they trying to avoid civilians and just focus on the correct military targets?
0: Yeah. That's, that was the first thought that I had when you said the four uh, points for the just war. Is it by just means? Right. And how, how do you know that? Is there a way to find uh, that out?
1: Well, this is, uh, this is where we want to be steely-eyed realists as disciples of Jesus. If you believe in the just war theory as I do, then we've got to advocate that Israel conducts the war in a just way. Now, I wanna say this to begin with. It is the tendency of progressives to have um, an optimistic view of human nature. So the more progressive you are, the more you think, oh, just give them a chance or, oh, you know, those poor people, if we just, you know, back off, they're gonna do the right thing. It's what Neville Chamberlain said about Hitler. And that's I think the best analogy right now for what people think about Hamas. Again, you got to remember Hamas is committed to the destruction of Israel. They're committed to that. Their leadership just in the last couple of days says, "Hey, if we get a chance, we're going to do it again. We're going to kill people like we did again." So, what do you do with that? Do you just let them have their way? No they're evil. I believe with all my heart, Hamas is a demonically inspired organization with the doctrine of demons. And and so Israel, in my opinion, is right to not let up. So how do you do it? Now, because I've been there so many times every day, not every day, but on a daily basis, I read the Jerusalem Post and Hayom, hey which are two Uh, Israeli newspapers. They're the two major newspapers in Israel. Well, there's another one. Ha'aretz is another newspaper in Israel. that They translate them into English so everybody can read them. Anyway, the Israeli army is really committed to just war. Uh, They will have commissions when the Israelis have done wrong, They'll investigate it, and the Israelis do admit when they've done wrong. So, for example, recently, uh, Hamas said that uh, there was a hospital that Israel bombed. Well, they hesitated at first because they wanted to make sure they didn't accidentally bomb the hospital. Well, it turned out it was a, a missile from Islamic Jihad. It didn't even hit the hospital. It was the parking lot beside the hospital, and it wasn't Israel because they, they review everything, they try to be as careful as they can to minimize civilian damage. But you've got to realize that Hamas wants civilian damage. Hamas wants the world turning against Israel. So Hamas will literally put their uh, military command under a hospital. Hamas will put weapons in mosques and in small schools. Hamas right now, Israel said to clear out North Gaza and for all people in North Gaza to go south. And Hamas is not letting civilians go to the south. My God Because when Israel comes, Hamas wants them to uh, destroy innocent civilians, and then they can tell everybody how bad Israel is. It's really demonic, Dave.
0: Wow. My goodness. So you said there were two things you said in that, that you you look for Israeli news and Jerusalem Post and Heyom. What was the third one you said? Arets. Uh, Arets. It's a Israeli newspaper. And those are places you can find online? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. About? Yeah. I think that might be a good thing to do, especially for me. Like, that's what I want to do, is I'm I'm wondering where you find your news to stay up to date without worrying too much about this American filter agenda stuff.
1: Yeah, I also find the Wall Street Journal is pretty accurate when it comes to Israel. Now, if you want to know the Palestinian side, I also go to Al Jazeera, uh, which is an Arabic website, uh, news site. And, uh, you know, it's good to look at both sides like that, because at the end of the day, we want to see it as God would see it and think accurately about it.
0: Can you say that website one more time? The Palestinian one?
1: Al Jazeera. uh, uh, A-L-J-A-R-E-E-Z-A. I was about to say Z-A. Canadians say Z, (laughs) Americans say Z.
0: That's right, we do. So, you know, I asked uh, several people last night and this morning, my wife included, uh, do you have any questions? If you can sit down with somebody who knows, I won't call you an expert so that you don't feel uncomfortable, but somebody who knows more than you, <laughs> what's going on over there? Um, what would you want to know? And, you know, pretty much general consensus is, is this the end? Is this a clear sign of the end, or at least the beginning of the end? Is this lining up with prophecies that we see in scripture about the end times?
1: Yeah, let let's talk about the whole question of end times in Israel. By the way, uh, one of the guys in our church sent me a text yesterday. I want to read it to you because it ties in with this. He goes, "If this isn't the end of times unfolding before us, I can't believe anything worse." Yeah. I think before all is done, Iran and the rest of the Muslim world will attack Israel. Um I don't I <laughs> let's let's I'll tell you what we should do is uh, just talk about the place of Israel in end times prophecy to an, answer that question.
0: Yeah, I, if, I really appreciated ahead. the way that you laid this out in your blogs about the different views, and then you talked about your personal view about how Israel fits in end times theology, and you're like, this is not you know, top-down what Renew.org believes, this is my personal belief about that. I really appreciated that, that was really helpful.
1: Yeah, so let's uh, delineate for our audience a couple of key things. So this is a podcast with Discipleship.org, and at Discipleship.org, we champion Jesus' method of disciple-making. And so uh, we're having this podcast, like if you're to disciple people, uh, what do we do? And so uh, what I want to go through with you now that we've done the historical background is walk through sort of a, uh, I think, a vital... uh, biblical or theological framework. The material that I just covered with you is on Renew.org, which is the teachings or the the message of Jesus. So think discipleship.org is the method of Jesus. Renew is the message of Jesus through all of Scripture. The two articles on Renew.org, the one we're about to talk through is, does God still have a plan for Israel? And the other article that I wrote is uh, understanding the hostility between the um, Arabs. Really, it's better to say the Muslims, although the uh, Palestinian Christians uh, really have a similar struggle with Israel. Um, Many of them lost their land and their homes uh, through what's going on. And so they struggle with Israel as well. But it's mostly the Muslims. The Palestinian Christians that I know, they really think their people should make peace with Israel, so that they can live better lives. But because of Muslim theology, they're not going to make peace with Israel. It's just it's, it's um, they've got doc to say that they've got doctrines of demons. So let's talk theologically about okay. it. And the question people ask is: Does God still have a plan for Israel? Now, as I'm discipling people and as we disciple our church, we we call this um, a third bucket issue. First bucket is essential teachings, which would be got the gospel and our faith in the gospel and what it means to have saving faith. That's first bucket. Second bucket is important teachings, you know, how to structure a church, how to uh, live out um, life as Christians in the body of Christ, and uh, the various important doctrines. Then you have what Romans 14 calls disputable matters. These typically are teachings uh, where God doesn't tell us clearly, he leaves it up to us, or there's enough ambiguity that there are Christians on either side and there's not an important vital doctrine at play. So for most Christians, how we handle the question of Israel is going to be a third bucket issue. That doesn't mean it's not important to work through. It's in Scripture. Obviously, God wants us to know it. So, Dave, let let me do something that I need your help with because I don't want this to appear too complex as I describe it.
0: Okay.
1: I'd like to describe the three basic views Christians have about Israel based on the teaching of the new Testament. Is that all right?
0: Yeah, let's do it.
1: Okay. The first view is the two covenant view. The God has a covenant with the Jews and a separate covenant with the church. Sometimes it's called dispensational premillennialism. According to this view, God has two plans. He's worked with Israel, and then they talk about, uh, I think, based on a misinterpretation of Daniel 9, that the prophetic clock stops. And then after Christians are raptured, then the prophetic clock starts again. Now, when I first came to faith, that was the view I was taught, and I tended to believe that. Me too. The second view is the view that I was discipled in uh, Bible college and then seminary, and it's called uh, supersessionism, how's that for a word, <laughs> or replacement theology, that the church has replaced the the uh, Israelites, that the all of God's promises to Israel are now focused just on the church. Uh, Gary Burge is a respected evangelical scholar and he puts it this way the work of Christ is definitive there is one covenant and it is with the church so everything in the Old Testament uh either has already been fulfilled or it's going to be fulfilled in the church and now that's the view I was discipled in and there's you know there's nuances and all of that the third view is the view that I now hold, and it's called enlargement theology, that Jewish people remain chosen, but both Jews and non-Jews must turn to the Messiah. What that means is that uh, everybody who comes into possession of God's promises, those promises were first for the Jews, and non-Jews are grafted in, like a branch on a tree being grafted in. We're grafted in to God's promises, but he has not abandoned uh, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He still cares about them, but they must come to faith in Jesus to be saved. Because I have that view, there's, there's five key passages that we could talk about that I think will give people a good summary
0: yes i, I noticed that in um, one of the blogs when you were going through Romans eleven and that's that's what I think of when you're talking about crafting us in and the branches it, you know to me like I, I was I was raised in the first view I'm, I'm not I'm going to mess those words up if I try to say it. Premillennial dispensationalists, <laughs> right? Is that it? Yeah,
1: that's right. That's it. by the way, so many people read the Left Behind series, and that's the first view. It's right. that God has two people; He's got the church, and He's got Israel, and the two don't mix because uh, in the end times, the church is raptured, and then God focuses again on the Jews. Right. That's that's the Left Behind series view.
0: But as you've discipled me um, through our leadership classes at our church, you know, this third view really came to light for me personally. And it's what I see there when when I'm reading scripture, uh, specifically through um, Romans and the passages that you included in in your blog. That's what I see. And that's what I I think lines pretty closely to God's heart, you know?
1: let, let, Let me mention five passages really quick to answer the question you know, is God, does God still have a plan for the Jews really is what it is, is like, is God looking after and does God care about the Jews? Did he bring them to the land? So if I was to do it chronologically, I'd start with Genesis 12, where he made the promise to Abraham that he would make Abraham's descendants a great nation and that he would bless the world through them. So, he made them a great nation which is what the old testament is about and he blessed the world because it was uh Jesus Christ was a descendant of Israel of Abraham he is the messiah not just of the Jews but the whole world so let's look at genesis 17 i'll just read it to you god said this to abraham i will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Well, that's a pretty definitive statement. This is where God had Abraham, you know, cut up animals, they literally cut a covenant. They walk between the cut-up animals with the blood in the middle uh, to seal a covenant. So it's a it's a pretty solemn covenant by God to give Abraham's descendants the land. Well, then chronologically, in Deuteronomy chapter thirty, when Moses gives the whole law to the Israelites, part of that is the blessings and curses of Deuteronomy 30. Listen to Deuteronomy 30, verses 4 through 5. He says to them, you know, if you are unfaithful, you'll be banished. Then he says this, banished from the land. Even if you have been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your ancestors, and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. Well, Dave, this happened to the Israelites. I mean, it it happened uh, in 586 BC when the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and took the Jewish people captive. Well, then they came back. I believe that in 1948, it happened again. Uh, You've got passages, uh, I'll just read a couple of these, like uh, Isaiah and Amos in the Old Testament. Um, Isaiah says, I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Amos 9 says, in that day I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins. I will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord. So you have these promises in the Old Testament. Now, I want to share two more passages, Romans 11 and Zechariah 12. So Romans 11 is very interesting. I I commend it to all of our readers. The question of Romans 11 is, what about all the Jews who didn't believe Jesus is the Messiah? It's really the question of Romans 9, 10, and 11. Now, Paul makes it clear that nobody can be saved unless they turn to faith in Jesus the Messiah. But he wants to explain the mystery. So if you carefully read Romans 11, starting in verse 5 through the end of the chapter, you're going to see him describing God turning to the Gentiles, but then the Jewish people are going to be provoked by this huge gathering of Gentiles, and they're going to turn to faith in Jesus. Now, some people say, well, that just happens throughout history. I, I don't think that's the best reading of it. If you carefully look at verses 25 and 26, it seems to be describing a massive conversion of Jews. Then after that, Paul says these words that really uh, changed my view, Dave. There's one, it's actually, it's two verses. There are two verses that changed my view. It would be these from Romans 11. Here's what Paul says. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. He means by that they're, they they don't believe in the gospel. The Jewish people don't believe in the gospel. Most of the Jewish people in the first century didn't believe the gospel. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then he says this, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Hmm. So God's gifts and call to the descendants of Abraham are irrevocable. He He's not going to renege on that. And Paul is saying this uh, in the mid-50s, so it's like 25 years after Jesus rose from the dead. He's talking about the Christian age, and he still says God's gifts and call are to the Jewish people, are irrevocable. So when I look at that, and then I compare it with my last passage, which is Zechariah 12 through 14, I just think there's a place for Israel. Now, what it looks like, and back to the question of, is this the end times? It looks like a huge attack on Israel. And it says this in Zechariah 12, 8 through 10. On that day, so it's this huge attack on Israel, it's going to focus on Jerusalem. On that day, the Lord will shield those who live in Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them will be like David, David the great warrior. And the house of David will be like God, strong like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. On that day, I will set out to destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem. Now catch this. So it's describing God intervening in Jerusalem for the Jews. Then it says this, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. So it's, it's, it's uh, God's grace and a tenderness in supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Jesus quotes this verse, by the way, on the cross. Wow. They will look on me, the one they have pierced. Well, who pierced Jesus? The Jewish people turn Jesus over to the Roman authorities, and they're going to look on the one who was pierced, their Messiah, and they're going to grieve. They're going to grieve, I believe, that they didn't see him and believe in him, and they're going to believe in him. And so the text goes on, I think, and describes a massive uh, turning to Jesus that the Jewish people experience.
0: That is fascinating. And what part of Scripture were you just reading? Where was that? Where can that be found?
1: Oh, sorry, that's the verses I read to you were Zechariah 12, 8 through 10. Uh The whole section, though, to read is Zechariah 12. is a little harder to unpack, but then Zechariah 14. Zechariah 14 literally describes the Messiah on the on uh, the Mount of Olives, standing on the Mount of Olives. Uh, so sometimes people will try to say, you know, these passages were fulfilled. I don't know of anything in Israelite history that was fulfilled like this. I mean, the prophecies of Zechariah are when the Jewish people come back from Babylon, and they're you know they've restored they're in the process of restoring. Uh, And there's nothing that happens after that that comes close to fulfilling these passages. And I believe they're not fulfilled. I believe they're pointing to a time in the future. But notice the focus on Jerusalem and uh, all the nations against Jerusalem. Uh, Dave, let me add one other passage that's not in the blog that I think is important for all of our listeners to think about. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus gives a description of the uh, destruction of the temple and the signs of the end times. And uh, I'd like to read a part to you because it seems that Jesus connects the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD with something that will happen at the end of time. okay? Okay. So he says in Luke 21 verse 20 talking about what would happen in 66 to 70 AD when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by the armies you will know that its desolation is near. So he's talking about the desolation or destruction of Jerusalem. Right. He basically says let everybody get get out of town. It's going to be dreadful in those days. Verse 23, how dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. But then, verse 24, he says this. They, talking about the Jews, they will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Of course, that happened. Then notice these lines, or this sentence. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That language, the fulfillment of the times of the Gentiles, that's the same type of language as Romans 11. But wow. he says this, Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles. So there's the sense in which Jerusalem is key, not just to this great conflict we read about in Zechariah 12, and I believe the end of Daniel 11 is probably talking about the same thing. But Jesus himself said, Jerusalem's going to be under Gentile control, but that's going to come to an end. Now, in 1967, the Jews took back the entire city of East Jerusalem. Well, they, they had West Jerusalem, but they took over East Jerusalem, highly contested by the Muslims. They don't like it at all. But the Jews now control all of Jerusalem. Verse 25, right after that, Jesus says this. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So, Jesus says, Jesus connects the fact that Gentiles will not be in charge of Jerusalem, that he ties that in with signs on the sun, moon, and stars. There's going to be roaring and tossing of the sea. There's Heavenly bodies being shaken. And I don't take this all just as symbolic language. I think there's going to be cosmic disruptions. Yeah. Then Jesus says this when you see these things take place, stand up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Now, real quickly, Dave, in 1 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear that nobody knows the exact day. Jesus himself goes on and describes that. He says, nobody knows, only the Father knows the day of his return. Again, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 makes it clear. So we don't know the day. But Jesus here in verse 28 says, you can know the season when these things begin to take place. Stand up and lift up your heads, he says. So here's what I look for. I think Jerusalem is central. I don't think we're we're at this point where Jerusalem is being surrounded by all the armies of the world. But I think we need to keep our eyes on Jerusalem. If these passages, as I understand them, are accurate, that there is a place for Jerusalem no longer being under Gentile control. There is a place for some kind of uh, armies surrounding Jerusalem. I think that uh, there's other signs that I don't see yet. Signs in the moon, sun and stars, the uh, people apprehensive of the roaring and tossing in the sea. I don't. I don't see that happening yet. So when my friend texted me yesterday, "Is this is this the end?" I I I think we're on the verge of that season, but I don't think we're there yet.
0: That that's kind of, you know, my opinion as well. And and I'm in a season right now where I'm. I'm watching. I'm not being overcome with fear, but I'm looking through the lens of: Is this the beginning of that? You know. And I would say, yeah, that kind of brings me to really the last question I think that I've got, um, which is: If we are moving into the beginning yeah. of the end, how do we live with hope, and how do we pass on the hope to the to those that we're discipling? Um, and be characterized by that during this time?
1: Yeah. Thank you for that question, Dave. You know, hope is always, uh, should be our dominant mode that we, you know, we live in hope. And uh, I want to share in just a second an acronym that we use, as you know, in our church about hope, or at least I've been using a lot lately, uh, because it helps me to remember, uh, you know, how to position my mind. First thing I want to say is that a lot of my friends, a lot of Christian leaders, a lot of the people that discipled me, um, they don't care about what the Bible teaches about end times. And uh it baffled me for a long time. And I and I thought, am I like, is it because my grandparents lived through the depression and they used to talk about it that like keep thinking about things could get bad again. There might, I don't know what it is. Uh, is it because when I was brought to the Lord, it was uh, actually a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. And uh, it was definitely talking about end times back then. That was the biggest, the best-selling book of the 1970s, Dave. <laughs> it was a version of Left Behind. Oh, um, wow. but But here's what I've concluded uh, in the midst of all my friends and all these confusing voices. Jesus warned us in Scripture so that we would be prepared, so that we would know we might live through bad times. And the best thing that can happen if you're going to live through bad times is to be mentally prepared, uh, to realize that the whole world might turn away from Jesus the Messiah, to realize in this context that there could be a whole lot of more mistreatment of the Jews, and we should care about that
0: mm-hmm.
1: because we actually owe a debt of gratitude to the Jews because our salvation is actually based on God's promises to the Jews.
0: That's that verse the, So we should
1: care about the Jews
0: the enemies that? of the gospel for your sake. That's exactly what I think of when you read that. We should be grateful. Yeah. That we got to be included.
1: Yeah. And, you know, uh, a lot of studies have been done on people that go through major surgeries or major trauma. If if it catches you unaware, it's much more hurtful to you that if you go through terrible things you didn't expect than it is if you expect it. Right. I played on some great, great football and hockey teams in the years. And we always played our best. And I always played my best when the coach said, it's going to be tough. Uh, the opposition is great. They're really effective. They're a great team. It's going to be really hard, but you can do it. I can remember one hockey game uh, was came down to the final championship. Fifty-six teams. We made it to the finals. It was the final game, and the coach didn't sugarcoat it. It's like this is going to be tough, but you can do it. And we did it. We won that game. Uh, so. I think Jesus is telling us these things to help us be faithful. Look, Jesus himself asked the question, when the Son of Man returns, will anybody have faith on her? Whoa, Jesus said that. I want to be one of those guys who has faith.
0: Yeah. The
1: book of Revelation, in my understanding, is typology from the first century projected on the last times that it's going to get difficult. I want to be that faithful remnant. I want to, in the words of Revelation 14, follow the Lamb wherever He goes. I want to help lead people. Dave, I want to do it with you. I want to do it with your family. I want to do it with my church family. I want to do it with other church leaders. I want to be faithful even when things get tough because I've been prepared by Jesus who told me that it would, to lift up my head, my day of redemption is drawing near where we win. God gives us the new heaven and new earth. Everything will work out great. So to shorten our time, let me describe an acronym that I teach with the people I'm discipling, and that I preach try to preach almost every Sunday now. In fact, our vision of our local church is sharing the hope of Jesus one person at a time. So here's what hope is. Uh, I use an acronym, H-O-P-E. H stands for hearts grounded in truth. I can get, you can get, we can all get crazy thoughts, and our, our our emotions can get a hold of us, our fears can get a hold of us. So we say about that, no, we want to have hearts grounded in the truth. Jesus is coming back. God's promises are true. Secondly, O is for optimism. You know, Dave, if you, you see this when you carefully read through the book of Revelation, if we're to live through the difficulties described there, there even there you see God's care for his children. I have an optimism. Um, again, the words of Hebrews 13. Uh, God says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. My optimism is based on my belief that God is with me, God is with all of his children in the affairs of our lives, that like David says in Psalm 23, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God promises to be with us. He's going to work all things in our lives for our good, even if it is difficulties and hardships. I just am optimistic. He's with me. Uh, P, my personal identity. My personal identity is not built around how people treat me, how people look at me. My personal identity is I'm in Christ. I'm the redeemed. I'm the forgiven. I'm part of the saints. You and I, Dave, we're the blessed of God. We're seated in the heavenly realms with Christ. Our identity is not based on all the things that happen around us. It's based on our identity in Christ. And then E, eternity is our focus. We look forward to the new heaven and to the new earth, to the city made by God, where we'll get new bodies, where we'll live in a land where it says this in Revelation 21. There's no more crying, no more tears. No more pain. All things have been made new. My eyes are focused on that time. I'll be there with all my loved ones who had faith in Jesus. My grandparents, just before they died, placed their faith in Jesus. I'm going to be there with them in eternity. My mother is in the last months of her life. I'm going to be with my mother, who's going to have a new body. I'm going to have a new body, strong, immortal imperishable body. We're going to live together in harmony. Uh, The scripture says the lion and the lamb will lie down together. We'll all be blessed. And my eyes are focused on eternity.
0: That's amazing, Bobby. I love that acronym. Well, thank you so much for your time. Um, Thank you for sharing what you did. That was extremely helpful and answered a lot of my personal questions that I've been kind of Uh, mulling around in in my mind. There's one thing I wanted to share with you um, at at the end of this interview. I thought this was interesting. I had a dream last night, an incredibly vivid dream, and I wasn't sure if it was from the Lord or if it was because I fell asleep reading your blogs about Israel. Um, (laughs) I was reading, I was trying to cram it in there in my brain before I fell asleep. But I had this dream where Um, me and my wife, Summer, you know, there was a tornado coming to our house and we didn't know what to do. So I I ran outside to get a look at it, to see where it was. And I looked over and I could see it forming really closely and I freaked out. And then this giant hornet, like one of those murder hornet things started like flying in my face and I could not get rid of it. So I ran inside like, Summer, this thing's trying to get me. And I'm like, man, I cannot focus on one disaster without something else happening to keep me from being able to do it. And then it's like everything just sort of faded out. And I woke up in this nursery and there were kids playing around. It was really peaceful. There was this awesome music playing in the background. And there was this man in there taking care of the kids. He was playing with them. He's just a normal looking white man, you know, brown hair parted, brown eyes, no facial hair, gray sweatshirt, and jeans and socks. socks. And yeah,
1: you, 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 Wow, I can't believe you remember all these vivid. Well, details. I, I wrote it down. Really? I
0: woke up at one forty-five and wrote it down. Um, wow, because I wanted to remember because it was one of the best dreams I've ever had. And I, I look at this man and I'm like, "Did I die? Where am I?" And he just sort of shrugged, like kind of like everybody did. Everybody died. Yeah. And I was like, "Well, you know, where where's my new body? Like, where, where's the new body?" And he looked at me and he said, "You are new, but you're still." you and I was just amazed at the simplicity of that statement and he was just playing with the children and they were laughing and then we both kind of laughed and we ran around and we played with the kids and I realized that I was dreaming and so I hit my knees and I, I thought the first part of my dream the tornado and the hornet was the real real world I didn't realize I was in a dream within a dream so I hit my knees and I started crying knowing that I was gonna have to wake up and go back to the end times, the last days, the suffering and the fear there and all that. And I'm sitting there on my knees and he's standing above me and he has my face in his hand and he just says, even in the end, I'm with you always. And then he vanished,
1: he vanished
0: and I woke up and I was, I was in tears. I was like, I just had a dream. I was with Jesus. Uh, it was like the shack in that way because he, he just looked like a normal person, but man, I just thought that was in that was the most incredible dream I think I've ever had, and the most real ab- about Jesus. And I just thought I would share that to, to end the podcast today because as I'm looking at the world, I'm 40 years old, I've got three kids, you know, under the age of seven, and we're just trying to get through most days with homeschool and. Uh, all that kind of stuff. And on top of that is this layer of what's going on in Israel. Is this the end times? Is my family going to be in danger? Are we going to be taken care of? And then I have this dream like that where it's like Jesus is like, I'm, I'm with you even to the very end of this thing. That's and I, so I was good, so moved and I woke up just full of hope and, and sort of wonder about what's happening. Because I know it's tragic and it's awful. But I'm looking to the horizon like God's coming. He's doing something yeah. and, and we're going to get to see it. And it's just what an incredible time um, to be alive and to just try to live this life. And it's just incredible that the Holy Spirit just continues to put hope in our hearts and our minds for us and also for the people that are around us. So, wow, I love,
1: I love that dream. And, uh, you know, I I hope that that stays with you because it's very much true to what Scripture says.
0: Right.
1: You know, Dave, we're uh, even Jesus told us, you know, don't let your hearts be weighed down by anxiety and worry. And I think that we just need to live our lives, be faithful, lift up our heads, like he said, and just know if we go through these difficulties, he's going to be with us. There might be tough times, but he's going to be with us.
0: That's right. And
1: like you said, we just want to live our lives with hope and with our eyes focused on that horizon of being with Jesus forever.
0: Thank you so much for being with me today Um, and just on the behalf of our listeners and people that have benefited from discipleship.org, thank you for following the call that God put on your heart to start this organization to help people because it has helped literally thousands of people. I see it every single year when we all get together at the forums and the city tour and just people are hungry for it and people know that it is the call of Jesus on their lives. So Thank you so much.
1: No, Dave, thank you. Thank you for being a part of what we do, Dave.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much for being a part of the first ever Discipling Conversations. If you enjoy what you heard, please give us a like and hit subscribe to the Disciple Makers Podcast. Thanks so much for listening, everybody.